This is Kohar. And I'm Iman. And you're tuned into another episode of Name It. Your encyclopedia of big ideas changing how we think about the world and talk to each other. Hey, hey. So good to see you, boo. You too, as always. As always. As if we didn't see each other 48 hours ago. I know, but you want to know what? These past 48 hours, I've had to work very hard mm-hmm. and just jolted me back into reality. Very hard, meaning I had to like work like a normal, <laughs> I feel like a mountain. But those days be literally bringing you back to reality. In it brought me so back to forgot. reality. So all that to say is I feel like I have lived different lives since the last time I saw you, True. which is this weekend. Yes. Yes. But let's get right into it. So today our big idea is cute drum roll. Yep. Got you. Dark Matters by sociologist Simone Brown. But as always, before we get into our big idea, we're going to start with a case study. So the case study is the segment in our show where we introduce the big idea by talking about an instance where we see it playing out in our everyday lives, research, and in current events. Yes. So to start us off with our case study, I've got a question for you, Come Hit me with it. When was a time that you realized surveillance was functioning in your life or taking place? Mm, Right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question because I think suddenly like surveillance is such this obscure term that is everything and nothing all at once. As in it's present, yet it's we're saying it functions best when it's unseen. Yes. And I think of all these moments in my life just flashed into my head where I kind of brush them under the rug because sometimes it's easier to just keep going on and moving right. on through your day than like really focusing on like, wow, that uncomfortable right. situation of going through the airport and being stopped and yes. tested for explosives on my fingertips. Yeah. It was like the smallest thing too. Yeah. They, they make it so like, oh, this is a routine process. You have been randomly checked. Let me just swipe your fingertips for explosives. And I'm like, what? That happened to me in Iceland. Wow. So that was one thing that like came to mind. I know you asked me for one. Yeah. But then I just thought about the time when I forgot that I had an extra water bottle in my bag. I went through like the Long Beach Airport in California, which was really small and random that we were even flying through there. Yeah. I think I was 15 or like still pretty young, Mm. Mm, 17, let me think of my age, around that time. Yeah. And they're like, you don't have any water, right? And I was like, no, I don't. Because I just, you know, being so like young, young a teen, under 18. I just was like, no, what are you talking about? And they're like, what's this? And I was like, oh, I forgot about that because I literally forgot about that. And then I had to get a full body pat down and like they took me to the side and it was so unnecessary. Yeah. And I just remember my family was laughing. Yeah. It wasn't like I just remember like, ah, ha, ha, this is happening. But then when you think back to it, you're like, what was going on there that Absolutely. I just didn't think of? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good one. I feel like a lot of folks have that like it's crazy because it's almost like a traumatic moment when those things happen in an airport. But it's interesting because it's even though it happened 10 years ago, it stays with you for that long of a time. And for me personally, I think about I'm reconnecting with my best friend from like middle school and elementary. And, you know, we both went to Muslim school together, both Muslim kids. And I think about I can remember as young as 
like eight or nine when we would talk on our home phones together. And if we ever heard like a tapping or like a clicking, we would just be like, oh, they must be recording us. (laughs) All that to say is like the idea of like the specter of like surveillance and people watching has been something that I didn't even realize was something that I just automatically grew up with as a Muslim kid growing up in like a post 9-11 context whose, you know, dad and family was really active in a, a Muslim community and whatnot. So I definitely relate yeah. to that or just that that ever present feeling that someone's listening in. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I think the thing is, we're going to prove to our audience and to ourselves that we're not making any of this up, that there is a true long genealogy of it and yes. such a broader history that we ourselves are an outcome of. Absolutely. Um, This literally just makes me think of my grandparents' generation. I don't know if we've done the math on whether that's your father's or your grandparents' generation, but our ancestors literally went through these same processes. But I often would say that it's not like the surveillance or the racism or all the structures in place go away. Yeah. They simply change form absolutely and go underground absolutely and so many of the things that those earlier generations were going through have not changed or even been eradicated in any way but they're still completely present yes and that's like so spot on because that is something a part of dark matters and our big idea that Mm -hmm. we're going to be talking about but I love what you said about this idea that it's always you're not supposed to talk about it so then when you do you almost seem unhinged when you're talking about it. Um, And I mean, coming off of the, obviously we're not post-pandemic, but this was the first Ramadan where, you know, people were gathering and in community. And something that I realized that happens in a lot of Muslim functions is people like jokingly tell their surveillance stories, like Mm. things that have happened to them, whether it be in airports or their homes, things that they've noticed. But whenever there's a naysayer in the room, and this gets to what our case study for today is, I always bring up, so I always say COINTELPRO, and I've been saying it wrong my whole life. It's COINTELPRO. But after listening to some of the audio of our previous episodes that we've recorded, I say a lot of things wrong. So I'm going to say, <laughs> I'm probably going to say COINTELPRO, even though I know it's COINTELPRO, but that's Hey, okay. language is language. It's always evolving and Thank transforming. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Truly. Yeah. And um, I'm sure as we go on, so many more stories of surveillance are going to come to mind. Yes. I'm yes. already thinking about more. That. Yes, because it's something, again, and this is what Dark Matters is going to show us. It's something that structures Black folks' lives. It's something that structures Muslim folks' lives. It's something that structures folks who come from what has been, you know, colonized term, the Middle East or something, mm-hmm. structures our lives. So get into it. So COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO stands for the Counterintelligence Program, which was carried out by the FBI formally between the years and I'm going to emphasize formally, between the years of 1956 to 1971 under J. Edgar Hoover, who basically pioneered and founded what we know of as today as the Federal Bureau of Investigation. So I emphasize formally between 1956 and 1971 because I think it's interesting in the narration of COINTELPRO that there's this idea that it's no longer happening and that it only started in 1956 when a lot of scholarship on Islam in America, which is the field that I'm most familiar with and also what we're going to get into with dark matters, is it far precedes this this time period between 56 and 
71. Mm-hmm. So according to FBI documents, one of the purposes of COINTELPRO was to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of Black nationalists and also a ton of other organizations that the U.S. deemed threatening to both domestic and international interests. So these organizations included the Communist Party, the Social Workers Party, the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, the Black Panther Party, the Nation of Islam, the American Indian Movement, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, as well as a whole host of Black leaders during the mid-20th century, including King, Stokely Carmichael, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, the list goes on. I can think of a couple more, too. Oh, absolutely. Celebrities. I mean, a bunch of folks. Billie Holiday, her interesting documentary. And it's actually really interesting to see how this list then gets taken up and added to and transformed post 9-11 in the wake of like these new colorblind racism policies that came after, I think, 2001. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a really funny meme that was going around the other day and I thought, not the other day, but recently. And I think it was a list of groups that the Trump administration had deemed like in Mm. need of extra surveillance. And it was all of these countries obviously coming from the Middle East. And then it was just like African-American Muslims. And it was like, good morning to bad bitches only. (laughs) Oh, I saw that. I think Armenians made it on that list. Okay, And then the reason I bring up like this kind of contested and shifting kind of amorphous existence of these groups is because I should mention I'm Armenian. And because this group has been so amorphous and has existed worldwide because of our genocide, I think the U.S. has no idea often how to label and what list to put us on. But a lot of the radical movements and the socialist movements of the 60s, 70s and 80s, 90s were placed on this list. Mm. But I think post 9-11, there is rhetoric that And don't quote me on this, but I've read and I can't think of the exact source, but I will try to find it that like one year Armenians were put on the list and the next they took them off. And it was so much about like how that president viewed that country at the time and in the context. And it's just so interesting how it's so shifting. Yes, some countries and some people like black Americans will never even have the privilege to be taken off this watch list. Absolutely. And also too how like the idea of racialization, and now we're going to talk briefly about this, is a craft in and of itself. Like the idea of like race as like race craft. So like in one presidency, Armenia is on the list and then the next it's not. And right. the state defining who gets to be deemed the other. It's yeah, always changing. Always changing. So I first came across COINTELPRO when I became interested basically in the history of Islam in America and Black Muslims. And again, like I said, kind of growing up I knew what COINTELPRO was before I even knew what COINTELPRO was. Yes. Because I, as a Black Muslim kid growing up, the idea that the government would be surveilling you, the idea that there would be an FBI informant in every mosque, those are things that you just grow up hearing as a kid growing up in a post-9-11 context. Yeah. And even though it predates post-9-11. And so that was something that was really interesting for me when I became a grad student to realize that this idea of surveillance is pre-9-11. And that's what a lot of historians and folks who study Islam in America are trying to move the narrative away from this idea of large-scale state surveillance happening at the start of 9-11 and actually beginning with beginning in the mid-20th century with like the religio-racial movements like the Nation of Islam and the Moorish Science Temple. Yes, and other political groups. 
So before COINTELPRO was formally established in 1956, Hoover had basically, as a young lad, had already begun to surveil religio-racial movements, like I had just said. And before the Nation of Islam was considered the Nation of Islam, it was called the Allah Temple of Islam. And so one of like the big moments where it became known both in the archive and amongst Black Muslims that they were being surveilled was in the early 1940s. So J. Edgar Hoover basically soft-launched COINTELPRO on the Allah Temple of Islam. And Hoover released agents to basically squash what he called, quote, foreign-inspired agitation among the American Negroes during World War II and believed that Japan was basically agitating Black Americans and wanting to form a coalition among the dark races. And actually, the religious racial movements and just the history of Black Muslims in America have a really interesting history during World War II because they refused to fight for a nation that didn't recognize their full humanity and didn't see them as a part of, didn't see themselves as a part of America. They were a Black nationalist movement. And to, you know, summarize Black nationalism is the idea that Black folks constitute a nation within a nation because the U.S. doesn't recognize them as full citizens. Mm -hmm. So basically, Hoover deemed the organization subversive and carried out a massive raid in 1942 that led to 70 members being arrested for draft evasion and whatnot, including the most well-known founder, Elijah Muhammad. And actually, Ula Taylor has a really excellent chapter on her book, how basically that this surveillance and this infiltration of the Allah's Temple of Islam positioned Black Muslim women as leaders of the religious racial movement during that era. So this is a fun fact for my own nerd interests. Yes. Yeah. And so something that makes COINTELPRO so wild to me personally is that when we think of surveillance, especially by the U.S. government, we think of it as something, like you said, passive. Like it's not supposed to be mentioned. We're not supposed to know about it. It's just this eye watching over you. But Hoover and COINTELPRO were taking active steps to dismantle these organizations, including the Communist Party of America, through basically any means necessary. This included paying informants, putting out misinformation to stir animosity between leaders, sending anonymous letters to members, taping phones, etc. Just everything that they could do to infiltrate organizations and dismantle them. Wow. And I think the term by any means necessary is so I'm going to use the word insidious here because we know a lot of organizations like the Black Mm -hmm. Panther movement, Black Mm -hmm. Power movement at large would think of their movement against oppression Mm -hmm. as a movement um, that uses any means necessary. Yet think about when that term is utilized by an organization, a governmental organization that, quote, is aimed at exposing, disrupting, misdirecting, discrediting, and otherwise neutralizing the activities of the nationalists in it. Mm -hmm. It's like, what does by any means necessary mean then? And we're going to go into examples where we'll see it's such a longer trajectory, one. Mm -hmm. But two, like you said, tapping phones and literally being that eye watching over I think one of the biggest things that this makes me think of is we are completely living in an era of disinformation, of discrediting, of this type of propaganda that's so dangerous because its aim is not the truth. It's actually the opposite. It's like you don't need to know what's happening within our borders. And I experienced this with the invasion of Artsakh the Armenian Republic in 2020. Mm-hmm. And Twitter is such an insidious is the word I'll use platform for really 
spreading disinformation now that for as many people that are trying to report the truth from the ground up and are reporting like we just saw a hospital get bombed, Mm -hmm. we just saw our church get bombed, there will be a thousand other voices. And in this age, bots, like people don't even have to be real anymore, putting out noise and misinformation and being paid for it often that you think about what is the responsibility of J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI and the CIA in making this such a globalized standard. Yeah. And I know it existed way before they even thought about, like surveillance has existed for so long. Yeah. Before, as we said, the FBI even came into formation. Yeah. But you think about like how much got neutralized and normalized in that process and how yeah. we're really just living in like this really deep, dark shadow of it. Absolutely. And and exactly what you said, it's like the masses could be saying one thing and then the narrative becomes something else. And it's really int- exactly what you said, by any means necessary, how that tagline is used to demonize Black nationalist mm-hmm. organizations, the Black Panther Party, Malcolm X, when the FBI was using the same strategy to infiltrate and discredit and completely take down and these bomb orga- and neighborhoods. Bomb. Like, exactly, exactly. As, like a, such a physical reality that we can see. Yeah. So we're going to try to paint that out for you all to see like we're not talking in the obscure. It's such a lived reality. Yeah. That we both are. I'm a granddaughter yeah. of the Black Power Movement. Absolutely. And my people grandmother's who come, generation. Absolutely. And people who like come out of that. Like you can't identify as a Black Muslim in America without exactly. hearkening back to that legacy. That's you, boo. Yeah, thanks, girly. <laughs> So this is, again, as I said in other episodes, too, interested in Islam in America and the life of Malcolm X and reading about the life of Malcolm X and the Black Panther Party in general. You can't read anything by anyone affiliated with the Nation of Islam or the Black Panther Party without them talking about how the surveillance impacted their life or when they noticed it. Mm. And they were like. At this point, I found like oh yeah documents in my car that I did not put there. Oh, and, like, exactly, different... exactly. Or somebody died and we didn't know who killed them. Sophia Bukhari, and we're, I'm going to reference her a little later. Also, again, talked about this, like the idea of all these people killed and none of their deaths being investigated into and whatnot. So again, Malcolm X, one of the most, I would probably say during his lifetime between him and MLK were probably the most surveilled people. Um, And so Malcolm X talks about like how insidious it was and how it was so blatant for him. So he talks about when he's traveling to Saudi Arabia and to Egypt and to um, different countries in Africa. It was so blatant to him that there was an FBI informant tailing him mm-hmm. that he just went up to him and was like, why are you following me? And they got into this big debate where he basically called like Malcolm X a traitor to America. So all that to say is Malcolm X was one of these people who very much knew that surveillance was a part of his life. And there's a really interesting FBI transcript that's a part of like the edited collection of his papers and whatnot where the FBI is basically asking him to work as an informant against Elijah Muhammad. And he's like, look, I don't know why you people want me to be an informant because the Nation of Islam, we put all of our points and our political points out there, point blank, period. So like Mm -hmm. there's no need for surveillance because we publicly tell you all exactly what we believe and what we're thinking. So, right. You know, you can approach it with like some humor. Like he's basically like we give you all of our shit and talk about everything that we need to outright. So we don't need to Mm, a principle. Think about that, that difference between that public facing like reality 
Yet they were asking him to be an informant, definitely in private, like, hey. Oh, yeah, this was at his house. Exactly. At his house at a time where they knew or had suspected that there was already animosity forming between him and Elijah Muhammad, right? So how would they have known that that animosity Mm. was already building and that Malcolm was breaking from the Nation of Islam without already being so keyed in? Yes. But like I said, COINTELPRO wasn't just watching people. They were actively trying to break up organizations. And how we know about COINTELPRO is, even though, like I said, Black folks, Black Muslim folks, other folks who have been surveilled knew about COINTELPRO before the name COINTELPRO was put out there, basically came to light in 1971 when a citizen's commission to investigate the FBI burglarized an FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, stole confidential files and then released them to the press. And in 1975, a major investigation was launched by the U.S. Senate Select Committee, which was referred to the Church Committee. The final report of this committee is 40 pages, and it's anybody can access it. It's online, so we're going to put it oh. in our show notes. So whenever I want to convince people of how deep the U.S. government has gone to surveil and suppress Black people and Black political organizations, I think it's pointing to how Cohen Telpro destroyed and targeted the Black Panther Party to me is my like always number one go to. And so one story. So someone that I'm interested in is Sophia Bukhari, who was a Black Panther Party member and Black Liberation Army member. And this is an example of just how insidious it goes. So she talks about when she first joined the Black Panther Party through their free breakfast for school children program. She had been going and then she noticed that one day no kids had showed up to this program. And so when she went to talk to the parents, she said that they had received letters saying that the food that was being fed to the children was being poisoned and was basically bad. Oh, my gosh. So these were letters. This is her Oy. saying that these are letters that were placed as a result of COINTELPRO to basically put out exactly like you were saying, putting out misinformation about what the Black Panther Party was doing. So that the Black children couldn't eat. Exactly. And that exactly. Is- Such a fitting metaphor, I think. Yeah. To prove that they were trying to take the futurity away from the children. Yes. When really the organizations were feeding. Absolutely. The children and the communities. Yeah. And again, to also then like the idea of the Black Panther Party, I think in general, pop culture narratives is told as this organization that was not doing the kind of community work that was so integral to their organization. So. Mm. All that to say is, and also the FBI realizing like community programs like that is how the movement was growing and people were being brought in. So you start there. Um, By any means necessary to them is to literally take away the food and the resources from the community. Out of the mouths of children. And I would love for us to link in the show notes as well, like the 10 point program. Absolutely. We will. We will. Absolutely. We will. And I'll also link and I'm going to Sophia Bukhari's collection of published essays that her daughter published after she had passed away called The War Before. So we'll link all that in the show notes. Another thing that the report showed and I read was I didn't know this before and I found really interesting that basically the FBI's efforts to, quote, intensify the degree of animosity between, so they wanted to intensify this degree of animosity between the Chicago Black Panther Party and the Blackstone Rangers, which was a Chicago street gang. And this included sending an anonymous letter to the gang's leader, falsely informing him that the Chicago Panthers had a hit out on him. And the stated intent of this letter, according to FBI files, was to induce the Ranger leader to, quote, take reprisal against, we know what that means, um, Black Panther leadership. 
So again, this idea that both surveillance was happening, and then as a result of the information that COINTELPO was gathering as a result of this surveillance, they were actively trying to infiltrate these organizations, break them apart, lead to members getting killed, and just lead to the complete like dissolution. And you think about how we're speaking about how we're granddaughters of this history, or we've inherited this genealogy. Mm-hmm. It's like we've inherited all that violence as well. So much and violence. That legacy of surveillance, that current reality, obviously. Yeah. That it's like for all of the good that came from them, it's such a shame that what is left behind is the violence that was enacted upon us. Oh my God, absolutely. And speaking of that, did you watch Judas and the Black Messiah? I have not watched that yet. Actually. I have My either. sister did. Oh, you didn't? No, and I'm not going to. It's just too, it's like, because you, right, mm. you already know. Like, you know that COINTELPRO basically wanted to prevent what they deemed was like the rise of, quote, the Black Messiah, got somebody to drug Fred Hampton, then raided his home along with the Chicago State Police. And like, And exactly what you're saying, you know what is at the end of that. Like, you know what trauma and violence is at the end of that. And I even Mm. found it difficult. I was on a panel last semester for Malcolm X. I found it even really difficult to rewatch the autobiography because, you know, none of these stories have happy endings. Yeah. You know that these are all people killed in their youth. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, not much older or much more life experience than we are or we will be soon. And yeah, it's just tragic. So, You're so no, right. I'm not going to I'm not going to watch it because I already know what happens. Even just raising these points with like our elders. Yeah. It's like such a fine line because yeah. I don't want to re-traumatize. I don't want to bring up like what I know was one of the most painful chapters of our history. Yeah. Yet the saddest part to me is how glorious, how joyful how much good there was that got lost within yes, the bad. Absolutely. Um, by design. And absolutely. it's not like it was a secret. And yeah. that just made me think about why Summer of Soul was so important. Yes. Yeah. And it was about the Harlem Cultural Festival that yeah. took place in 1969 um, at the same time as the famous Woodstock. Yeah. And for me, I remember I watched that and you said sadness comes to mind when we think about like the unhappy endings that kind of serve as that ending punctuation Mm -hmm. on the whole history of the black power movement. But this was such a joyous representation of an event that truly got quote unquote lost to time. Yeah. Like apparently the man that recorded this huge event Everyone should watch it, by the way. It's on Hulu, Disney Plus, all these different platforms. I love putting it in on the background. Yes. Just because the music is so good. Exactly. Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. I think Gladys Knight was there. Nina Simone. So many other acts. Yeah. That it was such a crucial time in our history. And I think, like, only Black people can really understand, like, why you can understand it but I can't even put it into words yeah like why that was so moving yeah but you put it that way like as joyous and beautiful as it was Mm -hmm. I think it was that realization that like it was a passing moment yeah that we didn't even have like the privilege to celebrate then until it got found like decades and decades and decades later absolutely and that reminds me of like A dream deferred. Like so many generations have to deal with, you know, ancestors who didn't receive reparations. Yeah. That didn't get all of their prayers and all of their active fights, you know, answered. Yeah. Yeah. 
Instead, they were confronted with misinformation, Mm -hmm. with misdirection, with all these neutralizing terms that point blank period violence, like in its most blatant form. Absolutely. And by the government, by the government. And Sophia Bukhari has an essay called We Are Veterans Too that talks about how members of the Black Panther Party, Black Liberation Movements, these same organizations targeted by COINTELPO were war veterans and an active war was waged against them by the U.S. government via COINTELPRO. And that as a result of that war that was waged against them, they suffer from anxiety. They suffer from paranoia, grief and PTSD that comes with seeing your comrades killed and your vision for freedom for all oppressed people never being realized and still Mm. having to grapple with like the death and, you know, in the wake of that. So. You're but. making me think of the American Indian movement. Yeah, they were also on the on very the, much on that on, the, list. <laughs> on that list. They were on that list. I know Lakota people. Mm-hmm. I think even just this month are commemorating the killing of their elders and the mm-hmm. um, the arrest of Leonard Peltier, mm-hmm. who were leaders of the American Indian movement, who were directly targeted by. FBI, the CIA, all the governmental organizations. Yeah. That were still answering for them. First of all, a lot of them are still in prison. It's not like yes, it they're this still obscure thing. It is 100% the Oof. like yes, that's like yeah, we're going to talk about my girl Sophia Bakari who also helped to found the Jericho movement to free political prisoners and um, mm. you can go to their website and their show notes and they have a list and you can write letters and engage in the campaigns to free the Black Panther Party members, BLA members, and other activists who are working to free oppressed people who are currently and still, even in their old age, in their dying days, still in prison as U.S. political prisoners. Oof. Time for a breather, maybe? Yes, time for a breather. My God. (laughs) Well... That kind of brings us to the perfect moment for us to pause. Yes. Because... Just as we all need to pause every day, we're reminding our listeners to pause when we're dealing with such heavy topics Mm -hmm. that, unfortunately, the way they stand, they almost sometimes pose as not having solutions when the system in place is made by design not to have the solutions in place. Yeah. Which is why abolition exists, you know, as a virtue. So... Let's let that all I know, settle take in. a second because that was really deep. <laughs> that yeah, was I deep. mean, I mean, more than deep, but it's just to, again, like one of the things is to also realize that these things are just, and we'll talk about this with dark matter when we get into our big idea, but like these things are still present. They might take different forms, but they're still things that structure our lives and structure the lives of our elders. And Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So how about we take three deep breaths okay. all together. All together. Cleansing class. breaths. All the way down to your diaphragm. Yes. Sometimes it's good to like let out some noise when you let out your exhales. Absolutely. Um, I was going to say... Yoga with Adrian on YouTube often reminds me that every breath is a new arrival. I love that. So we're resetting now for our segment two because we know that that's a lot of heavy stuff that unfortunately can weigh on you. Yeah. And 
Luckily, Dark Matters and the scholarship that we're going to get into today mm-hmm. provides a vocabulary for understanding it that, and a metaphor, I think, that is so necessary. Yes. Thank you to Brown. Yes, Dr. Simone Brown. All right, folks. Well, we are just going to get right into our introduction of Dr. Simone Brown. So in her book, Dark Matters, On the Surveillance of Blackness, published by the Duke University Press in 2015, she really takes us through this timeline back to the age of transatlantic slavery. And I think she really places the genealogy of surveillance in COINTELPRO way, 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 way back, which for us doesn't feel so distant. I'm pretty sure my grandmother and I finally, like, it's not doing the math, but we realized that her grandparents were the generation that was enslaved and then so on back. We, oh, like, yeah. know that once it's it starts. It's distance, it's, exactly. And it's just so tangible that I think it's important to pose this history even longer, and she so graciously does that for mm-hmm. us. So before we get into the big idea, I'm going to introduce her. So she is an associate professor in the Department of African and African Diaspora at the University of Texas at Austin. She is also the research director of Critical Surveillance Inquiry with Good Systems, which is a research collaborative at the university that she works at. And this research collaborative works with scholars, organizations, and communities to curate conversations, exhibitions, and research that examines the relationship and ethical implications of surveillance technologies, both AI-enabled and not, which is unfortunately such a necessary topic in this day and age. I was telling you about Twitter and my own personal bot experience. Bot well, I remember watching that on your Twitter feed being like, oh my God. Yeah, I've taken space from Twitter for that reason I was telling you because one, you can be dealing with both, like we were saying, AI-enabled, so bots, Mm -hmm. and people that are paid by the government to put out whatever. We learned a lot of people will not only serve as like individuals that are getting paid for this work, Mm -hmm. but then entire countries and like I would call them regimes, hire lobbyists. (laughs) Absolutely. To like clean up their image as we, I mean, we understand in this country a little too much. So I think Dr. Simone Brown is exactly in this field with us having this conversation that is both very difficult to have, as we said, because it's naming what is often absent in the room. But it's something that you and I feel so strongly about because we are of this genealogy. Absolutely. So So let's get into into the TLDR, which stands for Too Long Didn't Read. So I'm going to be summarizing the key points that Brown puts forward in her introduction of Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness, which is published in 2015 by Duke University Press. So this is the part of the show where we do the reading so you don't have to. But again, we're always going to link that book in the show notes so you can do it with us if you would like. So again, like we said, a major intervention of Brown's work is that she is disrupting a timeline. So she's basically like, okay, surveillance studies, and as I see it too, because I think the study of Islam in America bumps up against surveillance studies as well, is that if folks who study Islam in America, which is my field, want us to move the starting point of thinking about surveillance from 9-11 back to the mid-20th century with the religio-racial movements and the Black Panther Party, exactly like you said, Brown wants us to take that back to even further to basically the start of the transatlantic slave trade, which obviously, you know, 
takes its impetus in 1492 with Columbus and then really kicks off in its most evil form during the 16th century. So Brown uses the concept of dark matter to make an intervention into surveillance studies, which she says has basically largely ignored blackness. And so she uses this idea of dark matter and so like the basic Google definition of dark matter for those of us who don't quote unquote do science (laughs) (laughs) is matter that is unseen. And so because it's unseen, it's always hypothetical. And so Brown also talks about how then dark matter is also theory if it's unseen. Interesting connection there. But basically, scientists say that this dark matter that we can't see makes up the majority almost 85% of the matter in the universe in general. Mm. So she's using dark matter as a metaphor for describing how blackness has been taken up in surveillance studies. The idea that it is there in the dominating grounding force, but unseen and so therefore hasn't been talked about in the way that it should. So blackness goes unseen. And she also uses the idea of it's like a black hole, like the idea that you can't see a black hole, but it disrupts everything around it and can move galaxies. That's how blackness has worked when we think about surveillance. So Dark Matter names the, quote, surveillance of blackness as often unperceivable within the study of surveillance, all the while blackness being that non-namable matter that matters the racialized disciplinary society, end quote. So put another way, blackness is a key site through which surveillance is practiced, narrated, and enacted. And we can quite, you know, explicitly link back to the whole origin of the Black Lives Matter movement, which obviously is part of such a longer history of, you know, black surveillance that unfortunately we understand a little bit too well because of this whole assault against black and brown people by the police. But I love how we can then link the present epidemic, if I use that word, of police violence then back to, you know, its roots in the slave trade. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so she's putting forward a corrective. So she says that the surveillance girlies, folks in surveillance studies, have been basically obsessed with the panopticon, which is a type of institutional building and system of control designed by English philosopher and social theorist Jeremy Bethan. So think about the guard tower in a prison, mm-hmm. that being the panopticon, the idea of there's this place up in the air where you can surveil everything going on. You can think about Foucault's discipline and power where he talks about Jeremy Bentham. Exactly. Panopticon. And even look up a picture of this. And you, you'll immediately recognize it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's basically the watchtower that is often taken up in exactly. studies of power and discipline. Absolutely. So she says that we, instead of thinking about the panopticon as like the figure, the structure that informs how we think about surveillance, we need to take it back actually to the slave ship. Mm. And so what she says is that unlike these studies that center the panopticon, dark matter reads the transatlantic slavery as the antecedent to contemporary surveillance technologies and practices. And so some of these surveillance practices that she names as like the origins of surveillance include the ship's cargo and the, quote, cheek by jowl arrangement laid out in the stowage plan of what was the Brooks slave trip, slave ship. So we can think of, I think, the classic image that when you see a slave ship and you see how like the black bodies were laid up so immediately next to each other. That's what she's talking about. I mean, as cargo, that's all you need to hear. As, exactly. As cargo, the branding of slaves' bodies as the very first instances of biometric identification. 
Slave markets and auction blocks as exercises of synoptic power were basically the many watched the few. Slave passes and patrols, manumission papers and free badges, black codes and fugitive slave notices. She says these are all the structures that basically are the antecedent and predicate our contemporary notions of what surveillance means. And like the second you said where the many watched the few, I thought about, you know, strange fruit and lynching. Yes. And just how many people would come and watch the one. Yes. It's just. And she talks about that. She talks about that as also like in the idea of like taking the photo of the lynch. She talks about how all of that is a moment where the many watching the few and the black body being surveilled. And a lot of those lynching photographs then became postcards that were sent around of lynched black people. And Mm. it's just like. Imagine seeing your ancestor in one of those postcards. And obviously not the victim, but right. the fair, almost like a fair going event, like the way that they used to sell food during these lunchings. Like it was like a spectacle, an entertaining spectacle. Makes me feel a little sick. It's yeah. sickening. It's sickening. sickening. Mm, so glad I don't come from that. Right. Period. Period. <laughs> Period. Anyway. OK, so <laughs> back to it. So, for example, so like one of the ways that she connects our contemporary understandings of like surveillance to the past is she talks about how the Book of Negroes, which was basically an 18th century military ledger that named 3000 slaves who left New York City. She considers how this ledger was used to track blackness, um, which shapes our contemporary surveillance of mobility more broadly, including travel documents like passports. And that was 1783. So that was... Quite literally when this country was being formed. Exactly, exactly. And you can't say that it wasn't at the foundation of this country when you just simply look at the date. (laughs) Exactly. And again, like she's disrupting that narrative. It might be easy to think about how travel and mobility really changed in a post 9-11 context, like the idea you can't go up to the gate. But she's showing us the very inception of the idea of a passport and tracking mobility goes back to the transatlantic slave trade. It doesn't start in the 21st century um, or in 2001. Kind of giving me goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. Um, And it makes me think about this other example that will never leave my mind of hot air balloons being (laughs) the source of surveillance specifically in the French colony of Saint-Domingue during the 18th century, so the same time period. So basically, the start of the Haitian Revolution was fueled probably, not just probably by this, but I'm saying like as the hot air balloons of the French and the other colonizers were suspended in the air. Christina Heatherton, I should quote explicitly, who's a scholar that I had the privilege of listening to here at Yale, And I think she might have gone here. I should know that. Did she? (laughs) Yeah. Um, She basically talks about how these hot air balloons didn't work. They still started one of the most successful slave Mm. insurrections and revolutions of all time by, you know, basically lighting up that whole place on fire. Yeah. Of their plantations, specifically the Galifay plantation. So it was a manned hot air balloon, I should say. Mm. So that just like... That's so interesting. I mean, like... One, like, y'all are wild. Y'all were really putting hot balloon, hot air balloons up in the sky. But, like, even thinking about, like, surveillance, like, the technology of surveilling from the sky, to me, you almost always think drone. You think of the increased drone, mm. drone warfare. 
Absolutely. by like, the Obama administration, but then like, again, like stemming like with the Gulf War and whatnot. And again, but also not putting that within like a 21st or even 20th century context, tracing it all the way back again to transatlantic slavery and the Haitian Revolution. And so we can aerial keep- Aerial surveillance. A, exactly, aerial surveillance. We can keep moving the timeline back. And that was actually one of the biggest points in the Artsakh invasion mm. was drone warfare, aerial mm. warfare. And I think that was the most eye-opening because it's the type of thing nowadays is unmanned. Some of it is manned, but a lot of it is like so obscured from the individual that it's so hard to track back to. But it's just this eye that's like ever terrorizing the landscape. Yeah. So these hot air balloons could have been doing the most, but I just love how they're like, oh, you trying to watch us? Absolutely. We're going to fight right back. Yeah. The technology has just changed in a way that's like so incredibly lethal and devastating to the landscape. Yeah. Yeah. That they can literally blow up mountains and like destroy habitats with the flick of one button um, in a way that like maybe the man's hot air balloon wasn't doing it. Right. So that but the mission was the same. Well, exactly. The what mission I'm was the same, but the form and consequences have just and then, advanced and grown more severe. We think about then the panopticon and all these different technologies that then like took the place. Mm-hmm. But no, they didn't take the place. They existed alongside. Yeah. That it just became like an accumulation of these technologies that then added to the surveillance. They didn't take away. It's just like another eye to watch. Yeah. yeah. In addition to the camera. Absolutely. We'll get into. Absolutely. And I love this. I love that you talked about how like the idea, those hot air balloons and what uh, research shows is like these hot air balloons did not stop the revolution. And so what's amazing about dark matters pulling a little switcheroo on you guys is that we have our big idea, which is dark matter. But there's also two other ideas, two big ideas that are also really important to thinking about dark matter. So we're going to definitely get back to that resistance piece. But the first is the idea of racializing surveillance. And so Brown basically terms racialized surveillance as a technology of social control where surveillance practices, policies and performances produce norms and exercise power to define what is or is not out of place. And so there's an interesting connection here that I think we can make. And maybe one day we'll do an episode on the idea of racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields and this idea that like Race isn't something that just exists. It's something that's curated and created by the state. So what Brown is saying is that surveillance is a tool that produces these racialized norms that we think of. Mm. Yeah. So for Brown, this has changed over time, but most often upholds the, quote, negating strategies that first accompanied European colonial expansion and transatlantic slavery that sought to structure social relations and institutions in ways that privilege whiteness. And so I know you have an example of this, but one example is like the idea that, you know, when two white guys shake hands on the street, that's okay. But like if two black guys like dap up, then that's suddenly like subversive. And so I remember a time like literally when I was in no, this was in middle school when I was in eighth grade that our like version of our school security officer after school, like the cheerleading team and the basketball team, we were all packing up our stuff to get on the bus. And she saw two players, two black players basically do a handshake. And she thought that they were like passing drugs to each other and mm. took them to the police. And then the bus was held up and everything. So again, like thinking about surveillance, her role as a surveiller of students, how her understanding and her ability to exercise power on what was and wasn't out of place led to the surveillance and racialization and just anti-Black practices like get carried out at schools all the time against Black students. So 
You know, this brings me back to my thought that kept replaying in my head as, you know, we were preparing for this episode. It was just like, even talking about this topic mm-hmm. is like a precarious kind of scary thing because yeah. it's like you don't need to be doing anything wrong to get surveilled. Yes. You simply exist yes. in your body. And that reminds me of Driving While Black. There's totally a book about that. Yeah. I'm, I'm spacing out. We'll put it in the show yeah. notes. I will link to the book because it will come to mind. Yeah. I think it'll come up literally just when you type in that title. Yeah. You know, I was saying from the beginning, you asked the question about like, when's the last time you remembered being surveilled? That really jumps out to you. And it made me think about Cape Cod literally in 2020 in the midst of the uprisings against the violence, the anti-Black violence that was triggered by the murder of George Floyd. Um, My family got stopped, pulled over by a cop, literally as we were leaving. I think we went to like Provincetown that day. We were just having a cute day. It was my first outing after quarantine. And I think we were just being super precautious. And it was more like we finally gave ourselves, my family, the ability and the opportunity to like go have fun outside our house. So like to be mobile, to, you know, take opportunity of the mobility that so many people just were like doing so freely and they didn't really take the pandemic seriously up to that point. I just remember like being like, oh, we're finally here. And then reality hits in a way that this experience like is something that was brushed under the rug because that's how surveillance functions. But when you think back to it, we're absolutely racially profiled. And I was in the car with my family. Some of my family members were in there because we're all grown and have some separate cars now. But it was a packed car. And this is like a SUV. Like it's a, I hate to say, my mom has like a mom van kind of. It's not a mom van, but it functions like that. Yeah. He was like, oh, uh, you know, like you weren't doing anything wrong. Just a lot of drugs travel, you know, from up north. And we just got to keep on the lookout for that type of thing. I just remember being like, wait, this is really happening. I think it was privilege that nothing worse happened. Yeah. Yet the fact that he like admitted his bias is just something that doesn't always happen. Yeah. But then the longer you listen, the more it's like, you're just admitting that like you surveilled oh. us. And you don't even, I mean, and I, like exactly the point that you brought up oh, earlier. The school bus. Yeah, the school bus. And like even like how many traumatizing experiences <sighs> do we have of like the white school bus driver watching us in that the big mirror the way that like black students at least on my school bus were always positioned in the front of the bus mm. and different experiences but like what you said in the in our kind of our pre-show conversation like the idea of like can surveillance ever not be racialized right it's by design like we said it's always meant to police people who have been racialized yeah so this doesn't mean that we don't always exist in mm-hmm. our ethnic and racial forms as we identify it means that the state will identify identify us and judge us that way. Yes. So, for example, I'm Armenian, which is such an obscure ethnic group that has been like raced in so many different ways. My dad was born in Lebanon and so many people will just assume I'm quote unquote Middle Eastern. And of course, this term has been <laughs> contested. It's a colonial orientalist yeah. term even in itself. In so many ways. Middle of what? Right. But it's like, as a result of simply being racialized in some way, of being identified, regardless of how I identify, you have to deal with the consequences of how others identify you. And that's at the root of surveillance and what Dr. Brown is getting at. That it's 
it's everything and nothing all at once. And exactly. it exists best when it's unseen and under the radar, which gets at her term, dark surveillance. Yes, girl, say it with that French accent. Surveillance. Surveillance. Oui, je parle français. So, surveillance. Je ne sais pas. So, basically, surveillance means like on. Valence means, I think I should know this, like watching. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I know just the root or the prefix. Surveillance means under. So, yes, it's like yes. what happens under yes the table i'm under exactly exactly under the rug what gets brushed under exactly and so this idea of like dark surveillance yes you got it um so brown draws on steve mann's definition of surveillance which he defines as a way of naming the active inversion of the power relations that surveillance entails So this takes the form of, quote, observing and recording by an entity not in a position of power or authority over the subject of the valence. So basically, when the surveil turn the gaze back onto those who normally do the surveilling. And so this is often done through the use of like handheld and wearable cameras. And so Mm. Brown uses George Holliday's recording of the beating of Rodney King as an example of this, right? Like that footage was key during the trial and whatnot. And we can think of a a more contemporary version of Darnella Frazier, who was the teen who filmed George Floyd's murder. And the idea, again, of those who are normally surveilled, turning the gaze back on to those who do their surveilling. Mm. So it's deep. I mean, like think about like how today... Folks are told, and I wonder, I'm not sure if this would, as me personally, make me feel safer. I don't know if I would be able to do this, but like the idea of like when you get pulled over immediately pulling out your phone to record it. Right. That the camera, and this is kind of getting into my field of visual studies and photography. The camera is never neutral in its operation. Right, right. I keep plugging authors, but Ariella Azule talks about... So keep adding to that list. Yes, how the camera shutter is this instrument of imperial violence in very blatant terms. If we're talking about like the theft of objects, the use of photography in cases of genocide. But I think the way that the recorder, for example, you named George Holliday and you named Darnella Frazier, who were the two people that recorded Rodney King's beatings and the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. Their names and their gaze completely has been, I think, from my like confrontation with these, this footage has been kind of erased from it, Mm -hmm. even though they were the entity or the person that recorded or served as a witness to this violence. Yes. Yes. That they weren't necessarily like the police wearing the cameras that recorded the violence. Yeah. They were the ones that were like that third person onlooker. Yeah. Or witness that saw the crime take place. Yeah. But I also think like it just proves that the reproduction and the replay of this footage then serves to neutralize the gaze of that camera. Yeah. Because then we lose the viewer in that original moment where that footage was taken. Yes. And I think Arla Azule puts that like you're saying, shifting timelines. We'll see that that started way before, she says, even before the camera was invented. Oh, and that's exactly what Brown wants us to do. She wants us to see dark surveillance as something that starts and begins with like Negro spirituals that would sing and put the map towards like freedom in song lyrics. 
in a way that would go mm. undisguised during the plantation. And she also, in her books, talks about the pranks that used to be played on the plantation in order to, like, stop patrols, whether it be, like, stringing string along a pathway to, like, trip people up. Huh. Um, I know. Love it's it. like, right? I can imagine those right? pranks now. And, and, and all of the ways, and all of the ways that we don't know, or, or also slaves forging or, like, creating their own freedom papers and passing us free. And the way that you can observe how you're being surveilled through the creation of these papers and then turn that back in order to resist and, you know, forge these papers and lay claim Mm. to your own freedom without relying on the powers that be to give it to you. And so she also talks about dark souvalance as like a reading practice that sees how surveillance technologies practiced during slavery anticipate contemporary surveillance practices. So again, she wants us to keep drawing this timeline from the contemporary to the transatlantic slave trade. So... What I love about the concept of dark souvalance, and this is something that I'm, you know, studying for qualifying exams and also trying to think about this, is that she frames the idea of anti-Blackness as inescapable and always present, but not totalizing. Like there's these moments where through the Negro spiritual, through the forging of slave papers, like Black folks have always been able to, if it's not always resist, but just ensure their own survival and their own life Mm. and living, despite the anti-Blackness and the dark matter that structure our world. And to me, yeah, I feel like that's just like the pure definition of like a Black feminist analysis is paying attention and understanding like the gravity of the anti-Blackness that surrounds us, but having a particular keen eye for reading for these moments of like Black persistence and Black life. Yeah. Yeah. So that was Dark Matters by Simone Brown. And I'm, again, like I similarly just want to send some gratitude to Simone Brown for giving us. Yes. And it's you, a, it's a, a, the idea of surveillance studies and what she's talking about, Dark Matters, I don't know about for you, but like thinking about surveillance in those terms was new for me. So thanks for listening to us as we like worked out these ideas with you guys. We're not experts on them, but we're here working them out, trying to make meaning out of them. And I genuinely feel after this conversation, I have a better idea of what these terms might mean for me. I agree. These are very big ideas that hopefully we've broken down a little bit or at least supplied more opportunities for further reading to understand this really complex and complicated history that one, we are children of, yet just understanding like the gravity of what it has been. Yeah. And you really helped me. So thank you. Thanks, Boo. So now it is time for our final segment called Half Baked. I'll start. So my half-baked thought is that when Black folks refuse to turn off their cameras during Zoom meetings, that that is an act of dark souvalance. There was a big thing about that during Zoom where it was like people of color are like not turning on their cameras. And somebody that I worked with also refused. And I was like, I love that. Like, you're not going to let us infiltrate your private sphere. Now, I don't have the backbone for that. Really? I mean, I do, but I just... Like, if they're, like, cameras on, I'm going to... But I will turn off my camera anytime that I really don't need for it to be on. But, yeah, I think that that is a way... I think that's a means of dark surveillance, resisting surveillance. And honestly, what I think is that if a professor or even anyone will necessitate that a camera's on, that's surveillance. (laughs) I love that thought. Two (laughs) big thoughts. Dark surveillance. Yeah, that's just the straight up surveillance. I agree completely. <laughs> Not the surveillance. Maybe it's actually functions when as surveillance. When you refuse, yeah, I think when you refuse to turn on your camera, I think that is definitely dark surveillance. Well, that wraps it up, listeners. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Name It. You can find us on social media at Name It Pod and everywhere you listen to podcasts. 
please rate and review this episode and tell us what you liked and what you want to hear more of. And if you'd like, comment a big idea that you want us to take on. You can catch the articles and the books we reference and all the additional resources in our show notes and on our Instagram page. And last but not least, please share with a friend. And thank you to the Poorview Center for Teaching and Learning and the Public Humanities at Yale for providing the resources that help make this conversation possible. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.